0: Please, congregation, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, that's page 401, I believe, in your pew Bibles. Last time I was here, we considered the beginning of Solomon's life and reign. The title of that sermon was Solomon's Discerning Heart. And now if you see in your bulletin outlines, the title for this evening is Solomon's Wandering Heart. That's what we consider as we come to the end of Solomon's life and reign. In chapter 9, the Lord came to Solomon again to warn him that continued success in the kingdom would be contingent on whether or not Solomon and his sons would be faithful if they would walk with integrity of heart as his father David once done. Now we come in this chapter to see how Solomon would respond to that covenantal warning. 1 Kings chapter 11, we begin reading at verse 1 into the whole chapter. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon. Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. He did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, "'Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days,' For the sake of your father David, I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king of Edom. For it happened when David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain after he had killed every male in Edom, because for six months Job remained there with all Israel until he had cut down every male in Edom, that Hadad fled to go to Egypt. He and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him. Hadad was still a little child. Then they arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house, apportioned food for him, and gave him land. And Hadad found favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him as wife the sister of his own wife, that is, sister, queen of Tappanis. Then the sister of Tappanis bore him Genubath, his son, whom Tappanis weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genubath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. Now when Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, "'Let me depart, that I may go to my own country.'" Then Pharaoh said to him, But what have you lacked with me that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? So he answered, Nothing, but do let me go anyway. And God raised up another adversary against him, Razon the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord Hadadazer, king of Zobah. So he gathered men to him and became captain over a band of raiders when David killed the house of Zobah. And they went to Damascus and dwelt there and reigned in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the trouble that Hadad caused. And he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. Then Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerda, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. The man, Jeroboam, was a mighty man of valor, And Solomon, seeing that the man was industrious, made him officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. Now it happened at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, that the prophet Ahijah, the the Shilonite met him on the way. And he had clothed himself with a new garment, and the two were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him, and tore it into twelve pieces." And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give ten tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes, and keep my statutes and my judgments, as did his father David. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe... That my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart desires, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon, therefore, sought to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was forty years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. So far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to our hearts tonight. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord has been gracious to Israel. As I walked alongside, so to speak, King Solomon over the ten weeks of my summer assignment, I had to keep that the fore of my mind as I came now to the end of Solomon's life. The Lord has been gracious to Solomon. He has been gracious to his church and to his kingdom. Yet as we come now to the end of Solomon's life, we can't help but be struck by the author of 1 Kings' sober warning that we can live our whole lives as sons and daughters of God. We can live our whole lives as a people who who love the wisdom of God, who who pray for discerning hearts as Solomon once did. And yet, if we don't take heed of ourselves, and how great our fall can truly be. The perpetual question that the author of 1 Kings and 2 Kings would press upon the minds of the people of Israel is this, who will reign over Israel? Who will be the king that Israel truly needs? Who will sit upon this throne and reign from perfect righteousness and holiness? Who will establish and maintain justice and rest and and peace on every corner of the kingdom? And as the author outlines the lives of King David and King Solomon and the many more kings to come, the answer to that question is always the same, isn't it? Who will reign over Israel? Who will be the king that Israel truly needs? The answer is always someone else. Not this one, not this one, not King David, not King Solomon. Just look how his life turned out. No, it's got to be another. And as this story of Redemption unravels before us in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We see that God is going to preserve for himself a lamp in Jerusalem. As we read about all of God's righteous requirements, we read about God's perfect holiness and about the lofty responsibilities he would place upon the man who would rule over his people. We come to realize, that we confess in Lord's Day 5, that this wise king, this mighty king, he must no doubt be truly human and truly righteous. And yet he must also be more powerful than all creatures. He must be true God. That's the kind of mediator, that's the kind of king that Israel needed. That's the kind of king that we need. Israel needed a king who would be their perpetual salvation from the wickedness and corruption of a sin-cursed world. They needed a king who would govern them by God's word and spirit, who would, who would guard them and keep them in true freedom. Only this kind of king. Only this kind of king whose undivided loyalty, whose affections are zeroed in always on the will of the Lord. Only this kind of king whose heart never wanders away after the folly of the world. Only this kind of king can maintain unity and peace in the kingdom of God. Only this kind of king can maintain a unified kingdom for all eternity. Because a wandering heart only leads to brokenness in the kingdom. Divided loyalties only foster turmoil and division in the kingdom. And that's what we see in our passage for this evening as we consider the end of Solomon's life and reign. Solomon's wandering heart sadly brings about brokenness in the kingdom. We want to consider this as it plays itself out in three movements in our passage. Firstly, in verses 1-13... through We want to look at a kingdom corrupted by sinful affections. Secondly, in verses 14 to 28, we want to see a kingdom threatened by satanic adversaries. And finally, a kingdom divided. A kingdom divided but one day reunited by a Davidic lamp. A wandering heart only leads to brokenness in the kingdom. We see this first in light of Solomon's sinful affections. A kingdom corrupted by Solomon's sinful affections. Our passage begins with these words, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. He loved women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. These women from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you, because surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. And yet what do we read? Solomon clung to these in love. Sadly, congregation, it would seem as though Solomon has forgotten his first love. What's happened to the Solomon of chapter 3, verse 3, where we read that Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes and commandments of his father David? What's happened to the Solomon who, in chapters 5 through 8, built this magnificent temple for the name of the Lord? What's happened to this Solomon who, who went before Israel and, and blessed them and prayed to God on their behalf? What's happened to this Solomon of chapter 10 where the queen of Sheba, this queen from afar, travels to hear his wisdom and he answers all the questions she could possibly have. And the kingdom of Solomon takes her breath away because of his wisdom. For 10 chapters, the author of 1 Kings sings Solomon's praises. But now, as he's grown old, Solomon has begun to forget his first love in exchange for other loves. Solomon has a wandering heart. Solomon has drastic spiritual heart failure. We read he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart when he was old his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. In these opening verses people of God we need to recognize and see the subtlety of sin. Isn't often the case that sin tends to creep its way into our lives ever so slowly? How often don't our greatest falls into sin begin with a bent disposition in our heart that leads to wandering thoughts that produces sinful actions. The Lord says in Mark chapter 7 that it's from within, out of the heart of of a man, that come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder and idolatry. Flowing out of the heart of the man, says Jesus, come coveting and wickedness, deceit and sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness, all these things, said Jesus, come from within and they defile a person. All these things flow out of a wandering heart. Heart is the key word of the opening verses of our passage, occurring some five times in verses 2 through 4. What this word is getting at, congregation, is going beyond mere emotions and Feelings, those things are part of it, but there's much more to it than that. When the Bible speaks of the heart of a person, it's usually referring to the innermost will and affections of a person. What a person clings to, what he he holds dear to, for better or for worse. And such is certainly the case here with King Solomon tonight. You see, the author's frequent reference to Solomon's heart tells us that He's not fixating so much on Solomon's outward actions, but he's focusing and fixating on a change that's taking place within. That's at the root of his sinful actions. Over the years as king, Solomon's heart started to wander along the winding road of unfaithfulness. And his infidelity was subtle because it happened so slowly. It took years and years of Small compromises here and there. But slowly but surely, the sensitivity of his conscience began to erode away until we read these terrible words. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. The concluding narrative of Solomon's life is sobering congregation, and it ought to be. And while many of these marriages very well may have been political, the author of Kings is not interested in Solomon's politics, but only in Solomon's affection. Solomon clung to these in love, we read. And so he turned his full devotion of the Lord to sharing that love with the false gods of the world. And so he did evil in the sight of the Lord. We read that Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, a god whose worship demanded the sacrifice even of children. He built worship centers for these gods, allowed his wives to offer sacrifice to these gods in a hill just adjacent to Jerusalem, just east of Jerusalem where God had promised to dwell in Israel's midst forever where God had descended upon Israel on a cloud, promising that he was Emmanuel, God, with them. And for his lack of devotion to the Lord alone, for his violation of these, of the first of the Ten Commandments, we read in verse 9 that the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. You see, people of God, the Lord is a jealous God. He will not simply tolerate the lackluster, half-hearted devotion from his people, not from Solomon and not from us. For it's from this righteous jealousy that the Lord becomes angry with Solomon. In chapter 9, God appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had done at Gibeon in chapter 3. And there he graciously warned King Solomon. And he put before him the covenantal condition that if he would walk before the Lord as David had done and and walk with integrity and uprightness of heart then God would bless Israel forever. And there would be a man on the throne forever but if he or his sons would turn away and go off and serve other gods then God would cut off Israel and bring disaster upon them. He said in chapter 9 then Israel become a byword an object of ridicule among the people. Sadly, King Solomon failed the Lord. And by failing the Lord, he failed the people of Israel. Therefore, the Lord says to King Solomon in verse 11, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. So it shall come to pass by the will of the Lord that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel will be torn away because of Solomon's wandering heart. A wandering heart only fosters brokenness and division in the kingdom. Such will be the impact of the life and legacy of King Solomon on the kingdom of God. And that's what the author would press upon our own consciences tonight. The big question of our passage is not to ask whether or not we think Solomon was saved or not. Although I'd submit to you that Solomon's fall into sin is not much different than our own falls into sin. But the sobering question of our passage is this. What will be the impact of my life? What will be the impact of my legacy on the kingdom of God? Will the way I carried myself have had a benefit in the kingdom of God? Will it have brought about greater unity in the kingdom of God? Or will my life have had the same effect as King Solomon? Brothers and sisters, will we allow our own loyalties to be so divided by our own sinful affections that all we do is add to division in the kingdom? Or will we by faith fully devote ourselves to the Lord and experience already in this life a foretaste of that perfect kingdom unity which we shall have in the next life. How easily the story of our own lives could end up being a lot like the tragic ending of Solomon's life. So we need to ask ourselves, what sins are we committing? What sins are we tempted to commit that can only lead to division, that can only lead to calamity and turmoil? Because so if this could happen to Solomon, it can happen to anyone. That's why the Apostle Paul says to us, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Where do your hearts wander, people of God? The author of Kings, you see, records this sad, sad account of King Solomon, so that you and I might guard our own hearts that we might avoid Solomon's mistakes and by the Spirit of Christ keep on resting in the God of our salvation rather than the gods of the world. So we might rest under the reign of King Jesus rather than in riches and status. That we might love King Jesus rather than power and clout. We might devote ourselves to King Jesus rather than to covetousness and adultery and sexual immorality and so on. All these things that come out of wandering hearts. Can you say that your hearts are fully devoted to the Lord tonight? Can you say that your loyalties are undivided? If not, if you can't say that, then God calls us to repent, to To look to him to confess our wandering hearts to cling to the lord of our salvation thanking god that christ is not only a perfectly wise king but that christ is also a good shepherd a seeking savior as we sang a few moments ago he who sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of god he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. The glamour of the world appeals to us people of God because it is, as we sang a few moments ago, our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. Is it our prayer then? Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Do we pray in earnest then, let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee? Because of Solomon's wandering heart, the Lord is going to bring an end to rest on every side. He's going to raise up adversaries from both within the kingdom and from without the kingdom. And this brings us to our second consideration for this evening, a kingdom threatened by satanic adversaries. In verse 14 we read, And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house in Edom. A competing kingdom rises up against the kingdom of Israel. Do you remember where the Edomites come from, brothers and sisters? The Edomites, of course, had in common with Israel Abraham and Isaac. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. And now as Hadad, the Edomite, rises up in revenge against King David, it's but a continuation of that old, old feud between Jacob and Esau, that older feud between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And now Hadad is going to slither his way out of Egypt and into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel, a new adversary, a new opponent. Literally in the Hebrew, a new Satan. That's what Satan's name means, an adversary. In chapter 2, the author tells us that God had given rest to King Solomon on every side, but that will no longer be the case, will it? From henceforth, in the reign of King Solomon, that peace is going to be threatened constantly, both from adversaries outside the kingdom as well as from within the kingdom. Apparently, from what we gather in verses 14 to 22, Hadad had never gotten over his hatred and vengeful thoughts against King David, who in Hadad's mind had stolen what was rightfully his. Hadad was supposed to be king in the territory, but David conquered the land. And so Hadad is vengeful. He names his son Genubath, a name which in the Hebrew has embedded within it the the verb to, to steal perhaps perpetual reminder of what he thought had been wrongfully taken away from him. And so you can about imagine congregation the sinful gladness in Hadad's heart when he hears that David is at rest with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, is now dead. Now he can take his shot. Now he can can seize for the throne, seize personal revenge. And so he pleads with Pharaoh to let him go. And thus becomes a sharp piercing thorn in Solomon's side all the remainder of his reign. While this side story might seem of rather little consequence, Hadad's revenge is going to be just one of the tragic consequences for Solomon's wandering heart, for his sinful affections. In addition, this threat by Hadad is going to show the futility of Solomon's supposed alliances with the surrounding nations, as now even Pharaoh, the, the father of Solomon's first wife, is going to allow Hadad free reign to go back into Israel to do whatever he pleases. How sad, how devastating it must have been for the people of Israel. The people whose God had once delivered them out of Egypt, now delivers a great enemy from that same place to chastise them. Because they also had begun to participate in that same corruption allowed by King Solomon. Their hearts, too, had wandered away. The same hand that had once brought them out with an outstretched arm now is going to go against them as a corrective measure for her unfaithfulness. Such is the case for our sin, also congregation. That whenever we turn our own hearts away from the God who loves us, we confess and we know. From the fifth head of the canons of Dort, that we can and should expect to lose the sense of God's favor, so we might be drawn to repentance and faith. So not only is God going to chastise not, not only is God going to chastise Solomon from the south with hate, but also Razon from the north. Raison and his band of rebels are going to bring about all the more hostility and division in the kingdom. And yet even in his judgment congregation, God is being faithful. As true God, he is faithful not just in his mercy and in his grace, but also in his chastisement and judgment. And for that, we can recognize that he's all the more worthy of our praise and honor. He is a faithful God from age to age the same. For the Lord is indeed gracious and merciful, even in his anger against the sins of his people. And for anyone who is in Christ, the Lord's judgment against their sin is only ever corrective, even as the Father disciplines his children in love. And so often isn't the case that God uses consequences of our sins to draw us back to himself, even as he must have been doing with King Solomon and the people of Israel. For according to God's promise to King David, Solomon was a beloved son who would not be lost forever. As you may remember, Solomon's birth name was what? Jedidiah, a name which means loved by the Lord. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David saying, And when your son commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes and sons of men. But my steadfast love shall not depart from him. So it is with us as well, congregation, that even in our sin, as beloved children of God, we know that though he may discipline us with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men, his steadfast love will not depart from us. And so even the severe and tragic consequences of Solomon's sins would be corrective but not destructive. And faithful to God's promises to David, the Lord would yet remain. And so when we read verses 14 and fall, and we need not lose heart at the threat of, these, of the kingdom by new adversaries because at the end of the day, the Lord is still on the throne. It becomes clear to us that God is going to raise up these things, to bring these things to come to pass by his sovereign hand, bringing to pass the word he had spoken to King Solomon. It's the Lord who raises up paydad. It's the Lord who raises up raisons so that the kingdom, being humbled, might return to the Lord their God. And so it shall be also when the kingdom is divided, that even in the devastation of ruin and division, God will yet preserve a lamp of David for the sake of David. Which brings us to our final consideration, a kingdom divided, but one day, to be sure, reunited by a Davidic lamp. Perhaps most saddening of all people of God is that the kingdom is going to be threatened not just by those on the outside, Hadad and Raisin, but also by those rising up from the inside. In verse 26, we read, then Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and Ephraimite also rebelled against the king. Jeroboam was one of Solomon's trusted men, a, a man of might and valor. And when Solomon had seen how diligent a worker he had been, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. With this, we see the most devastating words in our scripture reading. Not only is the kingdom going to be threatened by satanic adversaries, but according to Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, the kingdom is going to be divided, torn in two. I trust that most of us know the account Quite well As Jeroboam is on his way out of Jerusalem, Ahijah comes to him along the way, and he's wearing a brand new cloak. Then he proceeds to remove his cloak and to to tear it into twelve pieces and to put them before before Jeroboam. He says, "'Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, "'Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon "'and will give ten tribes to you. "'But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David.' and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. I will do this, verse 33, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon. They have not walked my ways, they have not done what is right in my eyes. They have not kept my statutes and my judgments, as his father David The consequences of Solomon's sin, the consequences for his wandering heart and sinful affections will come to full fruition in the division of the kingdom. All the glory, all the grandeur of the previous ten chapters, it's all going to be torn away because of Solomon's sinful affections, because of his divided loyalties. And here too, we see from the prophet that this Judgment against the kingdom shall be from the sovereign hand of the Lord. But sadly, when Jeroboam hears this news from Ahijah, he is glad to hear them rather than waiting for Solomon to die to, to receive the kingdom as God had promised. He and said, uses the words of the prophet as a joyful justification to immediately start this rebellion against the Lord's anointed. And yet history is going to remain in the Lord's control. Hadad and Raisin are at his command. And the Lord knows the conspiracy formulating in Jeroboam's mind as soon as he begins to walk away from Ah from Ahijah the prophet. So while this news is devastating and saddening, the Lord is not paranoid about the division of his people. But he will in fact use that division to humble his people in order to draw them back to himself. And so we also can rest assured, congregation, that God, though faithful in his judgment, is indeed faithful in his mercy and grace. We can know that even when God's people are unfaithful, God remains faithful to his covenant promises. God's corrective judgment is going to be temporary for the sake of his promise to David. God promised David an everlasting kingdom that would never depart. He promised David that there would always be a man on the throne of David and Israel. And the Lord is not about to renege on that promise. Not only will he delay this judgment until after Solomon's death, but he will not take the whole kingdom away from Solomon's son. According to verse 36, he will give one tribe, to Solomon's sons that David may always have a lamp before the Lord in Jerusalem where God promised to put his name. He says in verse 39 that he will afflict or he will humble David's descendants because of this. But not forever. All this is to say, people of God, and I want you to hear this, that the Lord's affliction is not the Lord's abandonment. He's not abandoning Israel. He doesn't abandon us when he humbles us. But rays of hope are going to continue to flicker even behind these dark clouds of judgment and correction in Israel. The Davidic lamp will not be quenched. The Davidic lamp will never burn out. But far from it, because that Davidic lamp has been shining since the very beginning. Not even the thickness, darkness, says John in John chapter 1, has ever been able to overcome the bright shining light of the Davidic lamp. Because, of course, we know the lamp of David is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the great King of kings and Lord of lords. And although the kingdom of Israel will be humbled and afflicted, And though the kingdom today is humble today in the midst of wandering hearts and divided loyalties and divisions, there is and always will be sure hope for future unity and blessedness in the kingdom of God. And the unity, that unity we know will come to full expression on the last day when our Lord returns on the clouds to conquer sin, Satan, and death those key agents of division in this world corrupted by sin. Solomon wasn't the king that Israel needed. And like David, Solomon dies and is laid to rest with his fathers. a wise man, he may have been writing the book of Proverbs when he was a young man and perhaps most likely writing the book of Ecclesiastes as an older man reflecting on this division that had been brought about by his life and reign. He knew that the impact of his life and legacy would be the division of the kingdom. A sober warning for you and I tonight. Each one of us, you see, needs to recognize tonight that Christ being Lord and King over all is certainly good news for those who are loyal to him. But let this kingdom announcement be also a wake-up call to those who are not. Where do your loyalties lie? What will be the impact of your life? What will be the impact of your legacy on the kingdom of God? Will you this evening, by the Spirit of Christ, and you lay aside your sinful affections? Will you, by the Spirit of Christ, devote yourselves fully to the Lord? or will you persist, or will you be simply okay with having hearts that want to wander? King Solomon, you see, needed the king that his kingship pointed to as much as we do tonight. Praise be to God that King Jesus' heart never wandered. Praise be to God that King Jesus never wavered, even for a moment. For therein lies our hope tonight. We have a king who went into the wilderness to be tested and tempted by the greatest kingdom adversary. And not for a moment did he blink an eye. Not for a moment did he succumb to the temptation of the adversary. And he did that so that he might pour out his spirit at Pentecost, put out his spirit into our own hearts that we might cling to him and to him alone in love. That he might soften our hearts, seek our wandering hearts, take and seal them for his courts above. And so he would bid us this evening, congregation, to live our lives wholly devoted to him by faith. For he has earned for us the reward that only he, as the greater David, could ever possibly earn. That reward is as we'll sing in just a few moments from Psalm 132, that old, old song of the church. That if his children will keep his covenant and his testimony own, then as he, the Lord, has promised, they shall sit upon his throne. For the Lord says in that song, I will cause the might of David ever more and more to grow. On the path of mine anointed, I will make a lamp to glow. All his enemies shall perish. I will cover them with shame. But his crown shall ever flourish. Blessed be his holy name. And whose crown, beloved, shines so brightly as the crown of King Jesus. Jesus. For his crown is indeed adorned with the riches of grace and mercy his wise and discerning heart seeks out and rescues our wandering hearts he was bruised and broken for us people of God that he might restore that which we have broken in death he died and the curse tearing apart of body and soul He severed so that He might unite that which we divided. May He come quickly, congregation. And may He keep our hearts from wandering until that day so that we with Him might enjoy the fullest blessings of a kingdom strong, a kingdom united, a kingdom glorious forevermore. Amen. Shall we pray? Gracious Lord, having heard your word read and proclaimed to us, we take the words of the psalmist upon our lips so long ago. Gracious God, our hearts renew. Make our spirits right and true. Cast us not away from you, but let your spirit dwell in us. Your salvation's joy impart; steadfast make our willing hearts. Father, we thank you for giving to us a truly wise king, a truly righteous king whose loyalties were never divided, whose heart never wandered. We thank you for giving us that king and King Jesus who would lay aside his own desires, lay aside the glories of heaven by taking on the form of a servant and live the life that we could not live, and so secure unity and peace and rest in every side of the kingdom from now and forevermore. Father, we pray that you would cause us to bow the knee to his kingship more and more, that you would indeed pour out your spirit so that our hearts might be wholly dedicated to the Lord our God, that we might keep your statutes, walk in your commandments, following after our wise and mighty king. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.